Thank you, Brother Steve. Hey, our kids can go ahead and slide out uh, to Redemption Kids. And as they're sliding out, let me encourage you to grab uh, your copy of God's Word or turn your Bible on if you're using uh, a device. And we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you have one of the Bibles that we provide, that's on page 1029. 1029. Revelation chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at the fourth church, the fourth letter um, to the churches in Revelation. And, and what we've seen over the past few weeks is this. In Ephesus, in the first church, it was a, a call to get back to the love that we had at first. And then we looked at the church at Smyrna, and the challenge was this. Be faithful until death and you will receive the crown of life. Last week, we looked at the letter to the church at Pergamum, and the, the, the call, the challenge to us was to not compromise our commitment to Christ. As Steve prayed, if we're going to be a church that seeks first the kingdom of God, we've got to hear and respond to what the Spirit's saying not just to these churches, but to us today. And so that's my call to us, that, that we would pray, God, speak, help us to hear as we turn our eyes and ears to the church at Thyatira. It was one of the least known. It was the least known church of these seven cities. And yet, it's the longest letter that we have here in Revelation. And so let me just read through this, and we'll start working through this passage in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This is what the Word of God says. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And the churches, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on, on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we pray, the one who searches mind and heart, God, would you search us today? And would you grant us favor and grace to hear what you have to say to us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thyatira, along with Pergamum, had tolerated falsehood and moral compromise. 
And yet, what we see here, similar to Pergamum, you have a similar teaching. As, as there it was referenced, this is the letter right before this one, that they were eating food sacrificed to idols and there was sexual immorality. Here, it had gone full-blown because he says they were tolerating this. It wasn't just happening. The church was tolerating it. So what do we know about this city? What do we know about this church? The only other reference to this city in the Bible is a reference to a lady named Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And it says Lydia was from this city, and it says that she was a seller um, a seller of purple goods, which gives us a little insight here. What we do know about this city is that it gained its identity economically through a large number of trade guilds. So no matter what trade you were a part of, you were a part of, let's say, something like a fraternity that would gather frequently, and each of these trade guilds had their own god or goddess that they worshipped. One of the main ones in this city was the god Apollo. Now here's what, was, here's what would happen. If you were a part of one of these trade guilds, it would gather regularly and there would be religious worship to these false idols that would include not only idolatry, but all kind of illicit sexual immorality. That's what the believers are facing in this city. And what was happening is since it was so central to the social life and commerce, they were being tempted. In fact, we're going to see here, it was even being affirmed, go be a part of the, these idolatrous practices. And so this cultural situation paved the way for falsehood and immorality inside the church at Thyatira. And that leads us to our main point that I want us to see today. And it's, it's simply this. We should hold fast to the truth and reject falsehood. Hold fast to the truth and reject falsehood. I, I want to walk through just four encouragements as we think about holding fast today. And the first one is this. We should hold fast captivated by a vision of Jesus. What we see here, and you've, you've seen this in, in the past few sermons continue to come back. Each of these letters begins with a vision of who Jesus is. And in particular here, it's just repeating what was already said in chapter 1. But there are three aspects of this vision that we see here in uh, Revelation 2, verse 18. First of all, it says, these are the words of the Son of God. This is the only reference to Jesus as the Son of God in the book of Revelation. Though if you go and study the Gospel of John, it was a frequent reference to Jesus. He was the Son of God. Why is it used here? I think there's three main reasons. And let me just give you a heads up here. What, what we've seen already is that Revelation, a number of what's being written here, there are tons of allusions to the Old Testament, sometimes it's made explicit. Like we're going to see later on our passage today, there's just like an explicit quote of Psalm chapter 2. Other times, there's just allusions. What we see here are a couple of allusions that I'm going to help us walk through. First, Jesus being titled the words of the Son of God they, is being said in contrast to the God Apollo and these other gods that were being worshipped. And so what, what he's telling the church here is, hey, you're a part of these trade guilds that are worshiping these gods. Jesus is the true son of God. The second implication, and why I believe this is quoted, is later on in this passage, we see Psalm 2 is quoted, talking about how you are going to rule the nations with the rod of an iron. Now, I'm going I'm to walk through that later, but in that same psalm, which was interpreted messianically, you have the Messiah being referred to. It says, and the Lord said, you are my son. Psalm chapter two, verse seven. And so we're already tying and, and preparing the way for later what we're gonna see and unpack Psalm two. But third, we know that the book of Daniel plays an important part in the book of Revelation. In fact, the other two references on this vision of Jesus are what? Eyes like flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. That is a quote from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Now, 
as we step back in Daniel, earlier on in Daniel, there were three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and what were they being tempted to do? Worship idols. So they refuse to worship, and what happens? They're thrown into the fiery furnace. You guys remember this story? And at the end of the story, what happens? They're saved by who? It says there was a fourth person there, one like a son of the gods. Now get it, you've got the church at Thyatira that's being tempted and challenged to give into idolatry, and you have Jesus saying, I am the son of God. I am the one who protected them and Daniel, and I am the one who will protect you today if you prove faithful. That is who this God is. He is the Son of God. He is worthy of our exclusive devotion and worship. But second, we see here, his eyes are like a flame, a fire. This is referring to his penetrating insight and judgment. How do I know this? Well, we see it referred back to in chapter 2, verse 23. Look down, look down with me. In verse 23, it says, and I will strike your children down. And then then it says this, and all the churches will know. We have purpose here. Why this judgment that's about to take place? It's for this reason. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. You see, Jesus' constant presence means that he always knows our spiritual condition. In fact, every single person here, he at this moment knows exactly what's going on in your mind and in your heart. His knowledge pierces to our very core. Now for some of us, that may lead us to great fear. Right? Because what does that knowledge do? That knowledge exposes us. My parents were up visiting last week to spend some time with us and to meet Callan for the first time. I mean, we've got least parents here with us today. It's been good to have some time with family. But my dad, he was telling me um, a little bit about his journey to Boston, started in Charlotte. And um, he was telling me about going through security there. Who loves this? Okay. Hey, you ought to see my family with five kids go through security. I mean, when we roll up and, you know, you're like, we're all getting all of our luggage and, okay, I could keep going down there. It's like, for Lee and I, it's like, who knows what Zoe's putting her book back? You know, like, we're just like, please, like, I don't know what my kids, like, having their gear, but, like, it's almost, and, and us traveling to China, like, in January, like, there were a lot of those, like, just anxious moments. Well, anyways, like, back to the, the story my dad Um, going through security in Charlotte. Um, My mom went through first and actually grabbed his carry-on. And so now he's like looking for his his carry-on and couldn't find it. And my mom's like, hey, it's over here. They actually pulled it to the side. It happened to be her carry-on. But anyways, he got stuck with her carry-on and they're now pulled him over, searching through it. You know what set off the alarm? A bag of grits. Now, for those of you I'm from the South, grew up in North Carolina. Man, some, some good grit. And who, who doesn't know what grits are? It's okay if like, okay, that, hey, I'm, we're going to have some grits sometime soon, all right? You, like grits, and, and not just any grits, like the quick, like some good grits. Um, it, it basically, they thought he had drugs. You know, you open this thing of grits up, and they're like testing it out. My dad's going to get like, I'm going to get a phone call like, hey, we're not coming to Boston, you know, they, um, but he's got this bag of grits. What's my point here? All of us, like, have this anxious anxiety going through these security checkpoints. The reality is, man, T- the, the TSA, like, man, I'm thankful for what they do. They, they find a lot that, that doesn't get past them. Um, there's some that does get past them. You ever been through TSA and you're like, later on, found on your trip, like, how did this, like, make it through and... Here's my point. The eyes of flame of fire are infallible. And nothing 
will get past his gaze. Now, there's good news and bad news to that. The bad news is that, man, the reality is that, man, all of my junk is exposed before the creator of the universe who has the power to bless or curse. But let me encourage you with some good news today. You don't need to wait until the final judgment to have that exposed because he already knows it now. Don't, you don't need to live a life of trying to cover up and make people think you're really better than you're not. The good, the good news of the gospel is that, is that Jesus, who has eyes of flame like fire, also laid down his life to pay the penalty for those very sins that you and I deserve. That's the good news of the gospel. I don't have to run from it. I don't have to flee from it. This church here, come and let those deeds be exposed and place faith in Jesus. There is forgiveness. He has eyes like flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. This phrase complements the truths that we've already explored. One commentator says that it pictures Jesus as the true divine warrior. With his eyes like flames of fire, his, his insight penetrates, and with his feet with burnished bronze, he is prepared to give payment, whether that be blessing or whether that be destruction. Let's hold fast, captivated by a vision of Jesus. Second, let's hold fast, continuing in good works. One of the things that I love about this, even though they, our man, are tolerating falsehood, there's things that they are doing really well. And so similar to Ephesus, he starts out by praising the things that they are doing. Verse 19, I know your works. And read it this way. It's I know your works, colon. Here's your works that I know. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Love. I mean, if you're in here today and you're like, man, I'm kind of exploring this whole Jesus thing, when, when you, your sins are exposed and you place faith in Jesus, one of the things as you start following him, he says, this is what's going to mark you as a follower. You're going to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're going to love your neighbors yourself. It ought to be the radical love of Christ that defines your interactions. That's what they were doing. In contrast to the church at Ephesus. And there, there's, there's strong contrast going on here. In Ephesus, what, what were they known for? Go back to chapter, the beginning of chapter 2. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your tool, your patient endurance. There's some similarities there. But in verse 4 of chapter 2, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Not so Thyatira. They were growing in their love. But in Ephesus... What, what were they known for? It says, verse 6, yet you, hate, you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. They hated this, the, the, these false teaching that was related with sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols, but Thyatira was tolerating it. But Thyatira had love, which Ephesus had abandoned. And so we have some tensions here. Like, we're hearing and we're trying to put... You know, here all these letters of the churches and put together, what is it we should be striving for? On the one hand, we want to cultivate ongoing love for God and other people, but let's not do that to the point that we sacrifice theological vigilance and integrity. And on the other hand, let's not be like Ephesus that was so vigilant theologically that had cooled hearts and had little love for God and others. We want to hold these in they were growing in love in their faith they were walking in trust and faith in God's faithful provision and care over their lives service this is the only use of the word in the book of the revelation and this describes like an active life like helping others serving others tangible ministry to others and then finally a, a repeated theme that we've seen throughout patient endurance they were patiently persevering in the midst of temptation and persecution. And then he says this, which I love. 
that your latter works exceed the first. And what he means here by this, the works most recent are exceeding what you did at the beginning. In other words, their spiritual growth wasn't, and their spiritual vitality wasn't decreasing. It was instead continuing to grow, I would say, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Like more of it and the more quality, the more impact of their good works. Hey, let me ask you this. Let's now like take the eyes of flame of fire and turn them in on yourself. Because you know yourself as well as anybody. What one word would describe your spiritual pursuit of God right now? My prayer for us is that it would be said, as a nine-year-old church plant, and you're continuing to grow. You're not being complacent. You're not being lazy and passive. You're cultivating. Like this is something Jesus is holding up and saying, imitate this. Grow in love. Grow in faith. Grow in service. Grow in patient endurance. Let's hold fast, continuing in good works. But third, Let's hold fast, rejecting falsehood and immorality. As with the other churches, there is a strong contrastive given to us here in verse 20. He says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now this is going to take a little bit of time. As we unpack what's going on here, the church at Thyatira, the main problem is that they had become lax in their theological vigilance and they were tolerating falsehood and immorality. Explicitly in verse 20 there, it says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, she calls herself a prophetess, and she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. In other words, there was a group within the church that was being tolerated, that was given free reign to, they were given free reign to influence and lead God's people, God's servants astray. At the very least, in the church here, there was an unwillingness to confront this falsehood and immorality. And the nature of this falsehood and immorality and heresy was wrapped up in a person called Jezebel. So let's ask this question. Let's just, when I go through the text, sometimes it's like, what are the questions I need to answer? That's what I did this past week. Who is Jezebel? That's the first question I want us to wrestle with. So similar to the church last week, you guys remember, who was the Old Testament reference that was equated to the falsehood and heresy in Pergamum? Speak up. Balaam, right? Or Balaam. You can go back and see that in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. You've got this Old Testament reference that is then being equated with current falsehood and heresy within the church. Here, Jezebel is being used symbolically. She's an Old Testament figure to refer to someone, most likely a woman, prophetess, in the church at Thyatira. And you can go read. I would encourage you to do this. Go spend some time this week in 1 Kings 16 through 21. And you can read about Jezebel. I'm going to give you one verse that describes this lady. And this is what it says in 1 Kings 21, verses 25 to 26. I got two verses here for you. It says this, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. King Ahab was one of the kings, and Jezebel was his queen. Now, what do we learn here? She was the one that was inciting him to idolatry, as the verse continues. He acted very um, abominably. For some reason, that word looks really confusing right now. Somebody say that for me. abominably. We can all laugh. I'm not perfect. Lord, Spirit, you speak and give us understanding. And going after idols 
as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Now go back to the beginning. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. They were, you go back and read the story and you'll see, there were no more kings that were as evil as Ahab. We could go back. You guys remember the prophet Elijah? Who's, who's, calling, who's going on to Mount Carmel, and they're, they're saying, hey, the bells, you bring your gods, and I'll bring my God, and let's see who's real. This is who they're talking about, Ahab and Jezebel. So when Jezebel is being used here, they would have known from the Old Testament that, man, she was a wicked and dangerous person. And so he's equating their falsehood and immorality with her. And his goal is to shake up the church. Wake up. If you let this continue, you are letting somebody as dangerous as the Old Testament Jezebel reign and tempt and have influence in your your church. He was compelling them to take action against the heretical teachers. By this reference here, when it says Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, this was a lady in the church claiming to be speaking, a prophet speaking the words of God. Now, ironically, I don't don't think there's any, like, when we look, step back for a second, look how this begins Chapter 2, verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God. We need to hear the words of Christ. It's a call. And then he ends in verse 29, he who has an, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We want to hear God's word. But you've got a lady in the church who's claiming to speak the word of God that is contradicting God's word and leading them into heresy. So what in particular Was she teaching? What says here, going back to chapter 2, it says, You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. That word seduce there in in the rest of Revelation is a word that's translated deceive. So she's by her teaching, deceiving. That word seduces, she's deceiving, she's tempting. And you know what? All of those references refer to one of three people in the rest of Revelation. It's either Satan, the deceiver, the false prophet, or the harlot Babylon. What's the point here? Jezebel's Grant Osborne notes is seen as a satanic force claiming the spirit's authority as a prophetess but leading many of God's slaves astray into heresy. That's what's happening. It's deception leading people astray. What was she leading them astray to? It mentions explicitly here two things. Eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Now, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 spoke against both of these. He says, in Acts 15, he says, we don't put any other burden on you. It says, don't eat food, sacrifice to idols, and avoid sexual immorality. Later, Paul in 1 Corinthians, I don't have time to jump into it here, but it's basically arguing, hey, you can go buy and eat meat, that had been sacrificed to idols because those idols really aren't gods at all. So, so like, what's going on here? Here's the problem. They weren't just going and buying meat that had been sacrificed to idols. They were being invited and participating into the idolatrous worship of these false gods. And that's what's being encouraged. The focus isn't necessarily on what they're eating. It's on the participation of idolatry. And we see that here because of the language that's, in, that's it's made explicit. So um, there's, there's food sacrifice to idols, there's sexual immorality. But later on, look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit, what's the word there? Adultery. 
Now, I believe the first references to sexual immorality are about actual sexual immorality that was being affirmed within the local church, to which Paul says there shouldn't even be a hint, and you should be fleeing sexual immorality. This latter reference to committing adultery is being used symbolically like Israel committed adultery in the Old Testament and going after God's. And so he's saying, and those who commit adultery, in other words, those who have turned from God and are whoring with idols. That was the big issue that was at stake here. And why did it gain so much of attraction in this church? It's because of the economical identity of this city tied to the trade guilds along with the idolatrous worship. One commentator says this, she offered prosperity at the price of compromise. Because to not participate in the trade guilds, what impact is that going to have on you? There's going to be a social impact because you potentially lose your job. I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road. Are you going to seek prosperity or are you going to seek faithfulness? And these two issues are just as relevant for us today. Your job is to be a place to magnify Christ. And the call to us today is to not compromise for the sake of monetary gain, but you make much of Jesus, even if it means you need to speak up and stop being quiet about things that are happening in your work that are not honoring to God. And sexual immorality, you can just see, is rampant. We, I mean, we've spoken of this in multiple weeks. Go back and read Tanner's sermon. Listen to his on the beauty of sex. It is a gift, but what we see here is we see an outside of God's design, it can become something that is very destructive. And so we, we see who this Jezebel person is. We see what her teaching is. You have a reference to her children here. Verse 23, and I will strike her children. This isn't a reference to physical children. It's a word used to describe her followers. And I don't have time to get into all of this today, but if you go read this story in the Old Testament about Jezebel, what, ha- what did God say was gonna happen to her children? He says, I'm not gonna punish Ahab. It's your children that are gonna face Punishment as a result of your sin. And so there's a comparison going on here between what happened to their children in the Old Testament and what happens to her children, her followers, those who affirm this teaching and who do not repent. Now let me ask you another question here. What does this section 20 through 23 teach us about God? That's a question I wrestled through this week. And there... There's probably multiple things. There's two I want to highlight. One, I want to highlight the grace of God. And then I want to highlight the justice of God. Where do we see the grace of God evident here? Look, look with me at verse 21. It says, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. You guys hear that? In Romans 2, Paul writes, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance, not knowing that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know what the reality is? God doesn't punish us immediately When we sin, it says he's kind and he forbears with that. Why? It is his grace. Like God would be completely just if inside of our sin and adultery, we were just judged and punished and destroyed. That's what our sin deserves in front of a holy God. One sin. Adam and Eve, do not eat the fruit of the tree. Like, and and there's judgment. Like once. And yet he doesn't. 
He is patient with us. He is kind with us. He forbears with us. The very fact that you're alive today and you're hearing the words of Christ, he's being gracious with you and he's saying, repent and come to Jesus while there is still time. God is a gracious God. And yet he's also a just God. And we see that here. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses. Actually, you dig deep, you hear the languages. There's just ongoing lack of repentance. She's been giving, not just once, multiple opportunities. And she's continuing in a lifestyle of unrepentance. And so what happens? She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great Tribulation. The imagery here of sickbed is used here metaphorically for a serious illness. We see references in um, 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says some of you are sick and some of you even died as a result of how they've partaken of the Lord's Supper and not been aware and confronting and repenting of their sin. And so it seems like she is going to face physical sickness that's going to lead to death as a result of her lack of repentance. And those who follow her teaching are going to face the same death and destruction if they do not repent. But here's the word I want to plead with you today. Repent. What does repentance look like? Repent, repentance is the word that really just means to turn. And what's happening here, and here's the deal. As a follower of Christ, I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm still growing and pursuing holiness and killing sin in my life. I am not going to be perfect until I meet Jesus. So what characterizes Christians is not perfection. Because the eyes of flame of fire will make us all guilty, even Pastor John. What characterizes the life of a believer is that when we are confronted with sin, either through reading God's word or a brother and sister in Christ or through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what do we do? We turn. Because we know that the Bible calls us to treasure Jesus and love God above all things. And what Jezebel and her followers are showing is that the pursuit of God is not their number one pursuit. They love other things greater than God, and so they refuse to repent. So I plead with you, to, later today we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I would encourage you to use that time to confess your sin and repent. To, to turn from sin is to acknowledge it. You're right, that is sin. This is dishonoring God, and it is to ask for forgiveness and strive tangibly. So instead of tolerating sexual immorality, repentance would be, go flee. Run from it. Do whatever you've got to do so that you can pursue intimacy with Christ. Tim Challies, I came across an article this past week where he says, how do we test and discern false doctrine? And he, I'm going to just give this quick. And he said, here are five things. And I, let's just use this as an example. Because it, as, a, as a church, this is, we're, we've got to be rejecting falsehood. How, how do we know that? He says, first, the test of origin. Sound doctrine originates with God. Is this, is this something that's originating with man or is it originating with God? We see here it's, it's a satanic. Like it's, a, it's deception. It is not aligning with the truth of God. Second, it's the test of authority. Sound doctrine grounds its authority within the Bible. So if I'm going to argue theologically for a truth, I'm going to ground it in the authority of God's word, not in what seems wise or clever to the world, it's going to be God's word. Third, it's the test of consistency. Sound doctrine is consistent with the whole of Scripture. Almost every heresy within the life of the church has been because somebody's taken one verse and maximized it and minimized the rest of Scripture. But here's the good news. Since this is the word of God, 
And since God is all-knowing and perfect, God, we're saying this is God's word. One part of his word is not going to contradict another part of his word. So when I come to a confusing passage, I don't just like isolate this and create some doctrine or heresy. I go and look at other texts to shed light on this text. That's called the test of consistency. Fourth, you have the test of spiritual growth. Sound doctrine is beneficial for spiritual growth. And then fifth, it's the test of godly living. Sound doctrine has value for godly living. The church here failed the test. You have heresy and you have sexual immorality. Let's hold fast to rejecting falsehood and immorality. And then finally, let's hold fast looking to the reward to come. Jesus now turns in verse 24 and he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. What I think is going on here is that's an, a sarcastic allusion to her teaching, claiming the deep things of God. In fact, it's the deep things of Satan. What's his command to them? He says here in verse 25, I do not lay any other burden on you, only hold fast what you have until I come. And then he, re- he says this, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. Look at the, hold fast what you have. The truth of the gospel displayed not in just right thinking, but in right living, like those good works. Until I come, conquer until the end. What is conquering here? The conquering here is holding fast what you have until I come, until the end. And what you see here now made explicit is a contrast between three different works here. You have earlier on in the chapter a praise for the works of the church at Thyatira. Now, in the middle section, you hear the works of Jezebel. Where does that see here? In verse 22, unless they repent of her works. Now, you have Jesus saying, in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works. The grounds of my salvation are the works of Christ. And that's what we are called to hold fast and faithful to. And he says, as you do that, there are two promises for those who are faithful. The first promise is this. The one who holds, the one who conquers, he says this, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule with them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my father. Let's look at Psalm 2 here. This is basically an almost identical um, quote here from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, beginning of verse 7 says this. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. The picture here of the rod of iron, he's saying you will rule the nations. You'll have authority over the nations with a rod of iron. It's referring to, um, to most commentators believe it's this shepherd's staff, a shepherd's club. Grant Osborne says it's a large wooden club capped with iron for killing animals that endangered the sheep. So you've got this shepherd who's protecting the sheep, and he says this, you are going to rule the nation's with this rod of iron. The picture here is not simply one of just rule. It is one 
of destruction, destruction because of the other imagery. The other imagery is if you were to take a clay pot and you were to throw it down, what's going to happen? It's going to be shattered. You see that here in the text? You'll rule them with a rod of iron. You'll rule them as when an earthen pots are broken in pieces. The nations are going to be destroyed. In other words, believers are granted a share in the messianic reign, the messianic kingdom. We will reign with Christ. We're not told a ton in the New Testament on what this practically looks like, but here's the point. In this life, You can compromise your faith and follow the nations in idolatry or you can be faithful and one day you will rule and reign with Christ when the nations are destroyed. And then finally, he says, you will receive the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Numerous options have been given for the meaning of this phrase, but I will just highlight two that I think fit the context best. If we had time to go back to Balaam's prophecy from last week, what we would see Balaam is a pagan seer who prophesies the words of God and what's to come. And there's messianic prophecies coming through his mouth. And one of his prophecies in Numbers 24, verse 17 He prophesies that there's going to be a star coming out of Jacob. And along with that, he is going to hold a scepter. And so, this is a picture here that that there's this star, this this messianic end-time ruler of Israel who's going to have a scepter. He's described as a star who is going to crush the nations. This seems to make sense along with the Psalm 2 reference that you are going to rule the nations and with a rod of iron and that they will be destroyed. The, the other possibility, and my guess is probably a combination of both of these, is that the planet Venus, yes, I said that, the planet Venus was referred to as the morning star and it was well known as a symbol of Roman sovereignty and might. Grant Osborne notes, Roman legions carried the symbol of Venus on their bones, um, sorry, on on their clothes to depict Roman invincibility. So in this context, Christ would be saying that the holy final sovereignty and power lay with himself and his victorious followers. As we wrap up today, let me invite the band to come up here. Let's not miss what the Spirit has said through His words. Let's be captivated by a vision of Jesus. Let's be, let's be exposed and let's embrace the gospel where there's complete and whole forgiveness. Let's cultivate the works that this church was doing. May it be said, Redemption Hill Church, you're continuing, you're growing, you're straining forward, you're striving, you're praying on. Let's reject falsehood. Let's take that test. Where? And I don't have time today to, to unpack where are we being challenged and tempted with moral compromise and falsity, but we want to be known as a church that holds to the word of God, that seeks clarity and understanding, and we're following it, and we're going to reject anything that is, that is contrary to God's word. And then let's, let's be a church that has our eyes fixed, not on the here and now, Let's lift our eyes and look forward to the time to come. Jesus is inviting you to enjoy his rule and reign forever. The victorious rule and reign. Let's not compromise, but let's hold fast and prove faithful. Let me pray. Father, And we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the grace that you would send us, even the grace of your patience and kindness, allowing us time 
for confession and repentance. God, I pray, would you help us not leave here today not responding to these words. But God, may we leave with a sense of pursuit of holiness, with a sense of living in light of your presence, in light of the eyes of, the eyes of flames of fire, that it would, it would be eyes that lead us to blessing and worship and, and honor and not eyes that lead us to fear. God, help us be a church that holds tight to the truths of the gospel. Would we be faithful? Would we be true? Give us understanding into your word. God, would, would you help us to grow in good works like this church did? God, we want to hear your words of praise. May that be so of Redemption Hill, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As the band sings and leads us, we're going to invite our ushers down. We're going to have a time of participating in the Lord's Supper. Um, for those of you that are new to Redemption Hill, new to Jesus, Jesus before the cross had a, had a meal with his disciples, a meal where he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And he took a cup and he says, this cup is, is, is a picture of my blood that shed, the blood of the new covenant that is shed for your forgiveness of sins. And he says, you're to participate in this meal often as a reminder of what I've done for you. And so I would say for those of you that say, hey, I'm following Jesus. He, he, is, he is my God. I'm worshiping him. Man, I would invite you to come today. Make this an opportunity for worship. And, and before you come, I would say, God, would, would you look inward and just say, God, man, would you just pierce into my heart? Would you search me? Would you know me? Would you reveal any sin in my life? And I'll just, man, confess that, pray, and then come and just embrace the forgiveness that's found in the gospel. For those of you that are like, hey, I'm still kind of exploring this Jesus guy, maybe the best thing for you to do is just to stay in your seat and pray. And I would invite you today as we come and as we partake of the bread and the juice, that you would invite and say, Jesus, would you come and reign in my life? Would you confess him today and trust in him? And so let me pray, and then we'll partake. Father, search us, know us, cultivate increasing love and faith and service and endurance in our lives. God, strengthen our commitment as we participate today. And God, may the gospel and your work on the cross and your resurrected life fuel us for a life of worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.